Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, welcome dress listeners. Today, I think April is a very special episode because while we have had many PhDs on our show, I believe today's guest is our very first MD. Yes, that's right. And today we are joined by Dr. Christine Miller. And when Christine is not working full-time as an anesthesiologist or being a doting mother to her adorable toddler, she can also be found sharing her incredibly, I mean, let's face it, jaw-droppingly beautiful historic (laughs) costuming adventures on her Instagram and her YouTube. And her handle on both of those is at Sosteen. Yeah, and when April says jaw-droppingly beautiful, I mean, that's no joke. It's possibly an understatement. (laughs) Each and every piece Christine produces, be it an 18th century Madame Pompadour gown or an 1880s bustle gown, I mean, they're just awe-inspiring. And as our listeners already know, thanks to Instagram, I've become a huge fan of the historical costuming community, which spans the world. And I've connected with so many incredible individuals around the world. We've had a couple of them on the show. Um, And I'm just in constant awe of these people like Christine, who dedicate so much of their time to recreating clothing as it would have been worn in the past. Yes. And for this reason, we are so excited to welcome her today, and she is going to share with us her process, a little bit about fashion history knowledge and the inspiration behind her incredible work, which spans the 18th and all the way up into the 20th century. So, Dr. Miller, welcome to Dressed. Christine, welcome to Dressed. This is such a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Cassidy. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh my gosh, I am such a fan of yours and all you do. And for our listeners who might not know, I'm hoping you can provide a little bit of an introduction uh, to yourself and, you know, your profession and your historical costuming, you know, extravaganza that you treat us with every day. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. Hi. So, hi, I'm Christine. I go on the internet as Sosteen and I am a a lot of things, really. I am a historical costumer who focuses on digital embroidery and extremely detailed trim, but I'm also a physician by trade. So I do work in a hospitals as an anesthesiologist through this pandemic. And I also do a, oh my God, I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about how to create these things. And really, I also focus on Instagram. Yeah. And so I just want to take a moment and again, thank you for being here because I do not know how you do all these things. You're also a mother of an adorable, I think he's two now, toddler. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to be here, um, especially with everything you have going on. Oh my God. I can't believe I forgot to mention the family. Yes. Wife and mother and gamer. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to kind of learn a little bit more about you. Do you have an earliest memory of clothing that might have stuck with you over the years? When did you first realize the transformative power of clothing? I love to ask people this question. Oh my. Okay. So 
I was born in Korea and I came to the United States when I was three and a half. So I have a lot of memories of sitting in Korea, watching American Disney movies like The Little Mermaid, as well as um, there's an anime called Candy Candy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's basically a yellow haired American girl who wears fluffy, roughly dresses all over the place. And I was so obsessed with pink ruffled gowns, especially after Ariel's pink dress in The Little Mermaid, (laughs) that my aunt actually got me a nine petticoated bridesmaid dress for like a little four-year-old girl. And I was so big on me. And I remember wearing it for the first time. And it was the most happy moment of my childhood. And from there on, I think I just became obsessed with drawing and trying to capture dresses. And the older I got, I the more I realized what I really wanted to do was not just draw these dresses, but actually get to wear these dresses. Yeah, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think everyone probably has their own unique origin story about how they came to historical costuming. How did it all start for you? I believe you kind of started in cosplay too, if I'm not incorrect. That's exactly it. I initially started in cosplay. I noticed I was doing a lot of costuming for some of my favorite power females like Zatanna, Princess Leia, you know, um, Firefly characters. And that's where I started. And But the real one that I really want to make was Katrina from Sleepy Hollow, particularly that black and white striped dress that she wears for about 15 seconds in the end. Right. And I initially made it in college and it didn't quite turn out right. But, you know, I loved it enough that it, I just realized that my favorite movie costumes were all historically based. And once I realized that it was really easy to just kind of focus on that. I kind of went the steampunk route and did a lot of 1880s bustle dresses, one of which I got into the New York Times style section when I was in college. And that gave me the like the positive energy boost I needed to really just focus all my energies into historical. And that's not to say I still don't do cosplay. In fact, I'm working on a cosplay right now for another power female, a sister of battle from Warhammer 40K, which seems like a complete like turnaround. But to me, it's just, you know, more of the same, like, you know, detailed female power stuff. And I'm not a cosplayer or historical costumer, uh, but I come from a career as a costume supervisor and a costume designer. I started in theater and then I got into film and TV, but I have this just incredible appreciation and fascination with these communities, both the cosplay community and the historical costuming community. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, As you attest to, you know, they are really quite intermingled a lot of the times. Um, Even though I don't, you know, participate in these communities, I really, really am just, I just think it's so cool what you do. So for those who may not know, can you please tell us a little bit more about this worldwide historical costuming community and cosplay community? And maybe just kind of start by defining those things, because I don't think everyone may know the difference. That's a really good point. So I say cosplay and historical costumer like everybody knows, but so cosplayer is someone who makes costumes from movies, TV shows, video games, sort of like established um, IP already out there. So, you know, someone who's a cosplayer would be making a Princess Leia costume versus a historical costumer may take a museum piece or a picture from say like an old fashioned panel and try to recreate those. So it's different goals. So the cosplayer tends to try to make things as screen accurate as possible or take their own spin on it to a degree while the historical costumer is all about trying to get things to look historically accurate or 
correct to the historical time period. But these are vague goals. You know, everybody has their own specific goals when it comes to costuming, which is really one of the most delicious parts of it. Yeah. And I think just seeing how many, all these people all around the world who I've been introduced to through Instagram, that's how I became familiar with you and a lot of your peers, was just through Instagram and the power of social media. But I've met so many wonderful people and so many people who have incredibly different approaches to, as you mentioned, these same historical or cosplay approaches. So just so cool. So you yourself have really built this incredible online presence for yourself via Instagram and YouTube, as you mentioned, at Sostein is your handle. And you're really just showing all of these various historical dress projects that you've created at your in-home studio, which is just incredible. I'd love if you can tell us a little bit about your selection process. What is your inspiration between starting these different projects? So, oh man, I have inspiration from everywhere. And I think there's always about 15 different projects and ideas going through my head at any point in time. So a lot of times what'll happen is I will learn something about, or I will be able to actually procure a certain fabric. So for instance, right now I'm working on the dress that Marie Antoinette wears in the 2006 Sofia Coppola film, Marie Antoinette, in the chapel or the church, which has the strawberries on it. This particular fabric is woven in Italy. It's based off of 1780s waistcoat in a museum collection somewhere. And this particular fabric was actually used in about three different films, including the original Dangerous Liaisons movie. And it is so hard to get. If you can even buy it, it usually runs about 300 euros a meter. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, that is like, you know, I might be a doctor, but I can't, I can't spend that much. Right. And on top of it, it wasn't even like procurable until very recently. I was able to actually buy it because, um, not the original, but some other company on Etsy started making a knockoff of it. And I don't know how legal that is, but on the other hand, it's based off of an original waistcoat and the, you know, the trademark on that's run out like 250 years ago. (laughs) So The fact that is, you know, this other company started offering, it was very similar. The colors are almost identical. It's slightly different here and there, but it was so close. And the fact that they were able to offer it at a significant discount from the original price meant that it went from being a pipe dream in the back of my head to something I could actually do now. So a lot of times it'll be that I finally find the fabric and it actually becomes available. Or in the case of the strawberry dress, which I turned into, which is my strawberry Regency dress, I always want to make that dress, but I really didn't like the roses on the original embroidery because I, not because I dislike roses or I think it's ugly. I've just digitized so many roses, but then suddenly the strawberry dress went viral and I was like, I could just turn those roses into strawberries and no one's going to care or mind. So I was able to do that as well. So it's all about what becomes available too. Yeah. And the strawberry dress I want, just want to mention is a... (laughs) I'm probably going to butcher the name of this company, so forgive me, dress listeners, but Lurka Matoshi created this. I mean, I'm sure our listeners know it's that beautiful pink tulle dress that went viral because it just was all over the internet. It sparks joy when you see it. And it's embroidered in all of these these little tiny um, strawberries. And you actually use that as inspiration for creating, as you just mentioned, a Regency dress that I believed was based also on a V&A dress, an extant V&A dress. That was also recreated in the film Emma this past year. Um, so I just love all of those connections. You know, that that's actually like one of those things where I saw it in the movie and I was like, I need to make it. In fact, I loved it so much. I actually contacted the actual glove maker who made Emma's glove that she made for that movie. And I got her to make me the same exact pair for me. 
And uh, it didn't come in time for the photo shoot because mail. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, I still got, I still have it and I do plan on doing another photo shoot with it. But it's all these things coming together. The movie came out and kind of pushed me to make me want it and look at the embroidery again. And then because that beautiful strawberry dress, I personally think that this Regency dress, it's, it's like the original strawberry dress. It has the puff sleeves. It's made out of shif- like, you know, this gauzy fabric. It sparks joy. And, you know, it's, it's a perfect storm of thing, ideas coming together and what's available. Yeah, so, so cool. And I love if you could actually take us, you've talked a little bit about the photo shoot that, you know, you conclude these these productions with. We've talked about your YouTube and what you show this entire process to us. I love if you can actually take us a little bit through the process from start to finish. You've already told us a bit, little bit about your, your research, but maybe if you could pick one dress that you've done and kind of take us through how you you make it, but also how you share it with your followers. Thank you. I, I'm going to talk about the Rijksmuseum dress, which is the Redding Goat. I don't know if you remember this one. It's the green and white lily dress. Oh, yes. It's a 1780s Redding Goat in, in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. It is stunning. And it's a really interesting dress because what happened at some point is the Victorians got their hands on it and they butchered it. They basically uh, sewed it up and changed it so that they could wear it to a Victorian like costume party at some point. Which happens. <laughs> <laughs> more more than you, we probably realize how much people just adapted their second, you know, used their secondhand clothing like we do today. Yes, and uh, you know, the same way that we might get an Edwardian dress and wear it today, you know, it wasn't as big a deal for them. On the other hand, because they did that, I think that's the reason this particular dress survived in a collection because they butchered it. They actually kept it. So I saw the pictures and I loved it. And I started digitizing the lilies here and there. And by digitize, I mean, I get the picture, a close-up of the embroidery. And this dress has just delicious, decadent embroidery all over it. So I get the pictures that I can from the internet and I put it into my software, which is a special program where you basically put down each stitch of where you want the embroidery machine to go. And you can design, and you can basically use it as a paintbrush, like where you actually paint it, but then you have to choose where the stitches go, how the stitches go, what direction, the density, the type, etc. So it's actually very slow. But I just go up a little bit at a time, about 20 minutes here and there. And this is about um, two and a half years ago where I was working on this. And I was just slowly going through. And you hand paint it correctly, right? You like, you hand paint each little thing is basically, I saw a video of you doing it, which of course we can post too, if people are really interested in how you digitize. But it was basically you going in and drawing each piece and then picking the colors. Yes, exactly. So I... I actually use a surface book for that reason so that I can sit and draw us because I initially started out in illustration as my hobby, fashion illustration, of course. And I never, <laughs> I, you know, I was a biology major, but the nice thing about NYU is you can take classes in anything. So you digitize the embroidery. Um, how did you go about getting the fabric? So for, I digitize the embroidery. Um, of note, while I was in the middle of digitizing this, I went into labor. So the whole thing got pushed <laughs> off for a while. So after I gave birth and, you know, while I was breastfeeding, I continued to digitize for a while. And it's just sort of my outlet, you know, it's how I channel my frustrations and my tiredness. So after I digitized this, I did a couple of samples. I took, it actually takes me quite a while to procure the silk threads because silk thread is the only historically accurate thread that really works on a modern machine. There's also wool thread, but that really kind of kills an embroidery machine. So I won't get into that too much. So it took me a while to procure the threads. The silk, I 
one of the reasons I finally started on this project is, as I said, I finally managed to get the silk. The original dress is that this is almost like acid apple green. And I yeah. finally found the right shade of green. That took me forever. So finding that silk meant that I could go on with the rest of the project. So I ordered 10 yards of that and I started um, embroidering it out on my machine. So I use a, a baby lock venture. It's this 10 needle machine with a 14 by eight inch hoop. So I believe this particular design had to be broken down into 42 different panels and each of them had to be connected slowly and then attached one by one until you got the design out. And so you just go slowly by slowly and each panel takes somewhere between four and eight hours to stitch out. And I I saw this wonderful video of you getting a custom dress form created for yourself based on your body type that you then drape your patterns on. Correct. So yes, I do draft my own patterns when I have to. Completely honestly, I'm really all about uh, supporting small businesses. And if they can save me a couple of hours of my life <laughs> by selling me a pattern so I don't have to, um, you know, make my own pattern, I absolutely will support them. You know, Screw Patterns is a great example. Black Snail Patterns, JP Ryan. There's some really great pattern companies. But this particular Redding Goat, there is no commercially available pattern. And of note, I did email the Rijksmuseum and they were so nice to actually send me the pictures of the back and some close-ups of the embroidery for free. I like, I was so floored when they did that. Like not every museum does that. Um, I think Coyota Museum will absolutely says you can't even buy these photos. We don't share them with anyone. So, <laughs> oh my God, it's so frustrating. I, hate, I love it when museums share those. So Rijksmuseum is really nice about that. So because I had the back, I knew exactly how to draft the pattern for the back. And that's what I did. And it's so incredible. And then is this um, a dress that you actually filmed and put up on YouTube of how you did it? This one I have not, but I do have a blog post about it. And I only really got into YouTube about last December. So anything I've made before that, it's very hard for me to make a good video because all I have are stills that I put on my Instagram as well as my blog. So I did do it for my Art Nouveau skirt where I did go bit by bit by bit and show a YouTube video, but it's, it's all pictures. So because of that, I haven't put up this video yet, but maybe I should consider I do, did finally get good pictures of it, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. So after I stitch it out, you know, after I draft the pattern, I digitize it, I stitch it out, I cut it out, I sew it together very slowly. And you know, that's, I, it's just a labor of love. I really don't know how many hours go into each dress, but I would say it's easily summer for this one was about 250 hours minimum. Wow. And then after that, I actually um, have a photographer take a picture of me. In this case, I use uh, Lindsay Hinderer. She's in St. Louis. She's local. She is incredibly gifted. And I really do believe that, you know, considering how much money and time everyone puts into their own costumes. We should all get good photos of it. The thing about costumes is that they're made for your body at a certain time. I think you mentioned that I draft the patterns to a literal exact replica of my body. And I do do that. So that means that if I gain or lose weight or have another kid, it's not going to fit again. So you mentioned Lindsay Hinderer, and I want to just give you both a shout out because she was recently selected and with a photo she took of you to be featured in Vogatalia. And you both have this really incredible portfolio of work together. The green dress that you just mentioned, not only are you photographed wearing it, you get your hair and makeup done in the 18th century period, you know, period accurate style. And then she takes these hauntingly beautiful photographs of you 
And it's just an incredible way, like you said, to to really celebrate all of this work that you've put in and then capture it so beautifully in these images. And well, I'm hoping she'll let us post a couple on our Instagram so we can share just how incredibly beautiful they are. Thank you. I, I know she would absolutely love that. And I would love that too. And I think it's also a collaborative effort on everyone's part. I really do want to give a shout out to Mallory Harris, who does my hair and makeup. It really is collaborating with different artists. A lot of times what I do for Mallory is I literally just send her a couple of paintings that I really like with the hair and the makeup that I like. And she will look at that and she goes, okay, I can do that. And she does. And it's really, I try not to nitpick anyone about anything. I just say, you know, I would like, for Lindsay, I say, I would like a half body shot and a full body shot. What can you do? And then she just plans out the background. She plans out the scenery and everything. You know, the thing about hiring an artist is you hire their artist because you, you've looked at their other portfolio and you like their style. And she just brings this magical air into everything she does. Yeah, magical is actually a really, really good word for what you two create together. They're stunningly beautiful, and I'd love to share them. So you also produce clothing for your husband and your son. <laughs> and I am I correct that there is a photograph of you in this green dress with them also in eight period accurate 18th century embroidered coats and waistcoats. I will absolutely send this, <laughs> that picture to you. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's not taken by Lindsay because at the time he really refused um, anything and I needed a photographer who was super duper fast. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I did use a local um, photographer who specializes in, in like child photography. So she is fast. Like she is in and out of there with photos, which is necessary when you do have a small child. So for those um, suits, I also love making historical men's clothing. Honestly, if you ask me what's your favorite thing to sew, I would absolutely say it's a men's 18th century court suit. So I don't know if your viewers know this, but in the 18th century, men would wear these incredibly heavily embroidered court suits. They were just laden with embroidery from top to bottom all over their chest. And these court suits were so expensive. Like one court suit was about the cost of a car today. And the way that they were made is that you would have these embroidery workshops where they would stretch the silk onto a giant wooden frame. And then you'd have like 10 embroiderers sitting around it, embroidering your court suit for, for about four months. So it's an entire workshop of people making one suit for one man to wear to court. And they would not wear them just once, you know, they would be worn over and over and over again. And there's, for instance, a lot of interesting ones survive, like Count Axel von Fersen, the supposed lover of Marie Antoinette, his suit actually survives. And that's one of the ones I actually made a copy of for my husband. But the embroidery on these are just decadent and they're like so colorful and they have these beautiful flowers because there was no concept of toxic masculinity back then and men were allowed to wear flowers and swirls and all of that. Pre-great male renunciation of the 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) And then you've recreated that suit also in a version for your, you know, one and a half year old. I mean, it's just, it's such a wonderful photograph and I would love to share it. Yes, thank you. And of note, I would like to say that my son's version has gummy bears and um, goldfish (laughs) on the borders because I like to put a little bit of him in there as well. Welcome back, dress listeners. So Christine, you mentioned the Sleepy Hollow dress from Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow starring uh, Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci. 
Um, this incredible black and white striped dress where she literally gets out of the carriage, uh, I think in London, and like um, it's on screen for like, like you said, 10 seconds, but it's so incredible. And I think it's because it's photographed in a lot of the promo material for the show. It's just really become synonymous with that, that movie. You've created three versions of it. I would love if you could take us through your recent version a little bit, because you this is something that you actually did produce um, and record for your YouTube channel. So we really got to see this step-by-step production of this dress, which was just incredible, and involved 48 magic markers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I have always loved this black and white striped dress. And it's in the final scene. I think, you know, um, Tim Burton for a while had... All- almost all of his main characters wear black and white striped suits for a little bit, you know, think about Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas. And of note, if you look at Tim Burton's art, he has a tendency to enjoy lines that are very like distinct. It's never like a solid black. It's like kind of liney. It has that hand-drawn quality because he, he is also a visual artist. And for that reason, I think that's the reason that the original was not, in fact, a fabric. That black and white stripe is, in fact, hand-markered with, I think, Sharpies, actually, (laughs) which is crazy to look at. And um, it actually confirmed it in a museum exhibit. And if you look closely at pictures of the dress from museums and promotional stills, you'll actually see the lines of the markers because, you know, when you have markers, you don't have solid black. You have the lines of the marker within it. And once I realized that, I realized why none of my other previous versions looked correct because it lacked that sort of hand-drawn quality. So I did a lot to try to recreate it, including buying a ton of fabric markers. I actually did start out with Sharpie and I started getting a Sharpie headache about two (laughs) markers in. And I realized it wasn't going to work. So I tried wearing an N95. It's just like, I'm not going to wear an N95 just so I could work on a dress. So. At that point, I just switched to fabric markers, which are not toxic like Sharpies are. So I switched to that and I actually drew out the stripes and I recreated the dress and I'm finally satisfied with it. You know, third time's a charm, you know. So just a heads up, I did make it, you know, twice with actual fabric and once with markered fabric. And I did make a historically accurate version because the movie version, while beautiful, is not really historically accurate. So... And by historically accurate, I think it's based on an 18th century Polonaise French dress, right? Which kind of has those hooped up bustle rump. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's um, it's really, the fashion in the movie is actually about 1780s, despite the fact that they say that 1799, like if it were 1799, it would be closer to Regency style. Yeah, I was actually going to add, that was one of my questions because it's always surprised to me and it's always been something I've wondered uh, about what is your perspective on that? It is set in 1799. Like you said, it would be closer to Regency, which is high on pure waisted dresses, um, which started in the, you know, kind of actually in the pre-revolutionary and then post-revolutionary period for sure. But it's actually is representing that pre-revolutionary period. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't really care as much about historical accuracy as other people do. I mean, I use a giant embroidery machine to replicate <laughs> things. I'm not going to judge anyone on historical accuracy. <laughs> and the movie doesn't claim to be historically accurate. And, you know, it's one thing where a customer says my stuff is 100% accurate. And, you know, you say, well, it's not. But it's another thing if, you know, they're taking artistic liberties and they do it to perfection, you know. 
people always criticize things for, you know, not being historically accurate, but I don't really care about that as long as it's pretty and has a good taste level. Like Marie Antoinette, you know, is one of my favorite costume movies, you know, it's not historically accurate, but I love it. Yeah. And along those lines, uh, Dangerous Liaisons um, with Glenn Close and John Malkovich and Uma Thurman, you know, that says, that is said movie is set in 1780s, but, and in fact, it says so in the beginning because that's when the book was written and everything. But if you look at the fashions, it's all 1760s for sure with the ruffles and, you know, the giant wide panniers. And I don't care. I love it. You know, I love that movie so much. I had the um, movie costumer make my wedding dress. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Oh, that's an incredible story. <laughs> and makes so much sense now that I'm getting to know you a little bit better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point and something we're actually going to touch on in a little bit further in this interview about the recent Netflix Bridgerton, which is not historically accurate either, but is really giving us this level of fantasy that I think so many of us are relating to. And with that, dress listeners, you're just going to have to tune in on Thursday to hear a little bit more from Christine, including her very enlightening insights into Bridgerton, which, of course, we have already discussed on the show a little bit, and also what it is like to actually inhabit and wear historic clothing. Yeah, I mean, I think, April, and we've talked about this a little bit, there's so many misconceptions about what it was like to wear clothing historically, uh, you know, tight lacing anybody, um, you know, mm-hmm. so many myths. And Christine just smashes a number of them simply by, like you said, inhabiting these clothing. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Head to her Instagram at Sostine, that's S-E-W-S-T-I-N-E, and see for yourselves just how incredible this woman is. And of course, her YouTube will provide links in our show notes, which will take you to her website where you can purchase her embroidery files for yourself. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you contemplate adding a little historical flair to your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is, of course, where you will find images accompanying our episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment to take the time and to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform, we always appreciate your support and insights. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. And that includes our listeners. Yes. Catch us on Thursday for more Dressed. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.